Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 311, and today's guest is Carl Gish, co-founder and co-CEO at Arrow Homes. Did you know that 23% of global emissions comes from single-family homes? Needless to say, this is an underserved segment and an industry that is ripe for innovation. Carl's current company, Arrow Homes, is a purpose-driven company on a mission to redefine residential construction. The company was founded in 2021 and has raised $21 million in funding from world-class investors, including Eric Schmidt's Innovation Endeavors. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like why Carl has built a career with a focus on working on products that touch the lives of millions of people in a positive way, a deep dive into Carl's professional history across lots of market-leading companies, including Unilever, Amazon, Dyson, eBay, Affirm, and other startups, the environmental impact for single-family housing and why the industry has lacked innovation, all the details on Arrow Homes and how they are disrupting this industry, including their emphasis on reducing waste and improving efficiency, advice for building a great consumer product, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. It's hard to believe that we have over 300 episodes of the VentureFist podcast. We have built up an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies, and every episode includes lots of great advice to follow as well. So if you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to VentureFist.com slash podcast for the complete list. And oh, one quick ask, please share the VentureFist podcast with your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Carl. Carl, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you, Carl, because we've got a lot to talk about. When I was creating the outline for this conversation, I was like, wow, Carl's done a lot throughout his career. So we have a lot to cover. But before we get into that, I did want to talk about, um, you know, as we're going to go through your career, it was very obvious that you've worked on products that were mainly consumer oriented, that touched millions of people. And they're all like, products that have like a positive impact. So I, I wanted to get, you know, your feedback on why has that been kind of the trajectory of your career of working on products that, you know, really make a difference? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, something that I, early on in my career, as I thought about where I wanted to work, what I wanted to do, uh, product management was something that just really resonated with me. And in part, it was because it touched people's lives. I, I got to work on products that touch people's lives and ideally in a positive way, obviously. And to be able to work and, and work with other people and create things that people cared about and talked about. And that if you said, well, hey, where, where do I work? What do I do? People were like, oh my God, I know that product or I've worked on that. I like that product or I don't like that product. It just really resonated with me. And, and that's been the, a very consistent theme in the arc of my, my work experience. Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of great products throughout your your journey here. So let's just dive right into it. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, that's a loaded question, what I was like as a child. I will go with uh, curious and uh, precocious and um, perhaps not always willing to uh, follow authority. Well, those are good traits for an entrepreneur. That's definitely very common. So uh, you studied at Fairfield, which is awesome. Go Stags. And what led you down the path to attend business school at Cornell? Yeah. So when I graduated um, undergrad, I, I knew I wanted to go into marketing, product marketing. And 
the big companies, Unilever's, Procter and Gamble's, Johnson and Johnson's, they didn't really recruit from undergrad schools for their product management leads uh, for things like sales and manufacturing and procurement. They might, and so, um, and it was also the economy. It was it was nineteen eighty six. The economy was not in good shape. Uh, the stock market had crashed, and so I ended up doing. Um, doing a job in insurance brokerage with a great company, Marshall McLennan, which is uh, still, I think, the largest, the world's largest uh, insurance brokerage. And got a lot of really great experience, but realized pretty quickly, I still wanted to be going to product marketing. And so the, the, that felt and was at the time a really great um, path to go and um, do an internship. I did an internship at L'Oreal in Paris, of all places, which was an amazing experience in and of itself. And besides being a great summer in Paris, I actually it really solidified for me because I got to see firsthand, like, what does a product manager do in a consumer products company? And they gave me a lot of responsibility. And that, uh, that, that experience really solidified for me that I wanted to go into product management. And at that time, really one of the one of the only ways to do it was getting a, an MBA. That's changed now, but back then at those companies, that's what you needed to do. And going to Cornell again was such a privilege and, and they, that I got in there and I made lots of great friends and had an amazing learning experience. Got to an internship at L'Oreal. I just was blessed with, the, with the, you know, so fortunate to be able to have those experiences. All right. So after Cornell, you joined Unilever, right? That's right. So what was your role there? So I started as a product manager on one of their, um, what they called back then LDLs, light duty liquids, basically liquid dish, uh, dish detergent um, and uh, an important small brand. And it was actually a great experience to not work on a, on a sort of the mothership brand, which back then was Dove uh, for that business, because I got to do things and and um, take risks and have a broader experience than if, I, if I'd been started out working on the biggest, most important brand. And so I did that for a year or two and, and then got, uh, got an opportunity to work on one of the bigger brands, Lever 2000, which nobody will remember, but it was a big launch back in the, in the nineties. Right? Yes, it was a soap. Yeah, I remember and it. it. Was, yep. And they, it was the first time the company put their name on anything. And, um, it was actually the technology behind it was really cool. It was it was a great product. They spent a lot of money um, launching it. They think they sent out I, I want to say fifty million samples of of product to people's homes. So very expensive, really important launch, and it did really well. And I got to work on on that brand. And then I was able to uh, move over and work on Dove, and I got to work on the innovation stuff for Dove. So back in the early days when they were thinking about, hey, how can we extend this brand into new categories like face care? And this was a, a brand that had been known, it was, it was, at that point it was uh, 50 years old, right? And had been known as just a soap brand. And so trying to expand into other categories, body lotions, face cares, was a, was a tall order. Because um, of all the you know people's innate experiences and impressions of the brand, but it was a really good experience to to really dig into and understand consumer behavior, product development, all those kinds of things. All right, so from there you went to Amazon, okay, and this is 1998. That is a year after they went public. Am I correct? And in... yeah, they went public, I believe, in the spring, April and May of '97. Okay. Um, and they're based in Seattle. Headquarters are still there. And yeah, I had I'd actually been working on the 
the main Dove brand. I'd become group brand manager for Dove and had been working um, with a team that that broke the original idea for what is now and still the, the real beauty campaign. And that was really formative for me because as I mentioned earlier, here's this, here's this brand that's a soap brand. But the more work we did to understand how consumers used it, how they what their relationship, if you will, was to the brand. It was more than just a very utilitarian kind of um, relationship. And there, there was there was this opportunity we saw to elevate and and sort of take take a stand, if you will, on what what the brand's point of view could be. And that point of view, essentially, we we with a lot of help from the the ad agency Ogilvy and Mather, realized that. The whole beauty industry kind of um, sets up this this impossible standard of beauty for for women to compare themselves against, and particularly young girls. And that that was having a had been for for decades having a really negative effect on on women's self esteem, and particularly young girls' self esteem. And so we took a stand saying, "Hey, that that artifice isn't real. Isn't real beauty? What's real beauty is what's inside and, and enhancing that." And that work was, as I said, really influential for me and obviously for the brand. It's a, it's a campaign that still, you know, the, the core DNA of the brand is, is, is still going strong. And so when I was at Unilever, I was thinking about going international. I was really, really interested in, in um, expanding my, uh, my experiences there. And I was on the path to do that. And a recruiter called me about Amazon. And I had actually just been, I'd been fortunate enough to be leading uh, Unilever's efforts for its first website. And again, this is 1998, so I feel like I'm dating myself. But <laughs> so we had this website, www.dove.com. And, you know, we just thought it was the, the best thing since sliced bread. And we spent a lot of money. We had these cool HTML things. And it was, it was you know, really cool. And it didn't occur to us, like, why would people want to go to dove.com um this because right, it was just in, brochure like it was just information about the product it was like content right yeah flat content <laughs> and news there, there was no um yeah so in hindsight um and that was actually one of the one of the questions one of the interviewers at amazon asked me like what are people going to do at dove.com like yeah but anyway um so uh i had i had been aware you know Amazon was was very nascent. They had just gone public. It was still a very small company, but it was starting to get a lot of exposure. And when I went out there and interviewed with them, I was just blown away by the caliber of the people, the the clarity of what they were trying to do and how they were doing it, um, and and how they were building a culture of 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 just really high performance, high engagement culture. And um, yeah, so I uh, I was lucky enough to get a, an offer to go be their first one of one of their marketing directors, uh, the, actually replacing the woman who who used to who used to be the marketing director and then became the GM of, of music when they launched music, and uh, it was it was a wild ride. Well, what I discovered was your GM of books, which that was their flagship anchor business. So I was like, wait a second, Carl was the GM of books. Like that's that's got to be an amazing experience, and I would expect uh you know you had to work closely with jeff bezos yeah i i, I did and it, it was an amazing experience at the time we had sort of we had as i mentioned we were we were about to launch music we we're about to launch video we were going international and 
everybody previously had been focused on the books business and ultimately sort of Jeff was the GM of books and then David Richard, the head of retail. But then everybody's attention got um, got uh, bifurcated into into different different business units. And so I raised my hand to to sort of take the take the helm of, of being the GM for the books business. And it was it was a, it was an amazing experience. I got to work closely with Jeff um, and uh, a lot of other great people, uh, some of whom are, are, are still there and running the business. Um, so it was it was a pretty intense, pretty intense. So what did you do next? Uh, after the book business, I, I actually went moved over and, and ran the electronics businesses for a couple of years. And and then after I'd been at Amazon for almost four years, uh, there was a bunch of reasons that I decided to come back to the East Coast, partly family, partly people don't remember, but those were what we call the dark days of Amazon. You know, people think the stock was at $5 or something. I still absolutely believed in the company, but uh, between... What was going on with the business and my own personal reasons and, and my wife and I are from the East Coast, we decided to go back East and um, and ended up uh, going back to Unilever. Um, it was funny because at the time I thought I'd stay in the internet business, but or e-commerce and internet related businesses. And there really weren't that many. This was, you know, the dot-com bubble had burst in early 2000s. And if back on the East Coast, there was a little bit, if I remember correctly, and, and I think I do, sort of this... Yeah, I knew that internet thing was 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 gonna was gonna you know was gonna gonna blow up kind of thing. What a fad! And, um, yeah, you know Google <laughs> Google was was barely nascent, and you know Facebook didn't exist. It, it was a very different world than it is now. And Unilever um, is such a great company. I had an opportunity to go back and run a portfolio of brands there, and um, so ended up doing that. All right, after that onto Dyson, which is another amazing product. Yeah, I, I decided to go do something a little smaller, more entrepreneurial uh, and took over marketing and sort of product development for Dyson in North America. And that 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 was a, an amazing experience. James is, is an amazing entrepreneur and uh, the products you know, it's 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 textbook in so many ways for how to disrupt a, a category and just reinvent the rules and to do it with um, uh, really big ambition and and to not do it in increments, right? I mean, everything from charging five times the average price of a vacuum, which a Dyson was back then, to uh, and just the insights and sort of the he was really um you know i'm stating the obvious here but but um uh a genius in a lot of ways about like they did research about having a clear bin for all the stuff and the research came back and said no and they did focus there's people like oh that'll be disgusting and oh why would i want to see that and he's like no people are going to want to see i know it what they're picking up it will give them a sense of satisfaction, all these other things that he was right about. And, um, you know, everything to sort of making it look like this amazing piece of design engineering, all those things sort of reinforced, like you wouldn't pay five times as much for a vacuum that looked the same as every other vacuum, but you might if it looked and sounded and, and was talked about really differently. So just a lot of great sort of product development, if you will, marketing or brand insights and and things that he he was really good at 
Yeah, because it was the industrial design that I, you must have learned a lot. Because obviously, digital with Amazon, you know, an actual product like a soap, right? But the industrial design of a vacuum cleaner or the many other products that they've built that must have been fascinating. Yeah, it really was. And 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 you're right. The industrial design component is is critical. And and realizing that people that design and engineering they always have been. Um, there's been a little sort of magic or mystery for, for the rest of us who aren't designers and engineers when you see those things. They're, they're just intriguing and engaging. And James fully understood that and, and, and really celebrated that and let people participate in design in a way that previously didn't, didn't really happen. All right, so after Dyson, what did you do next? After Dyson, I, I was looking to do something more entrepreneurial and I I had the sense that I still had um, e-commerce um, I had this e-commerce experience that I wanted to try and leverage you know I, I'd learned from the best I'd learned with the best and uh, it was my first opportunity to sort of run a business and there was a, a company called the Stripes Group they're, they're based in New York they're sort of a venture capital private equity company. They bought this small company that had been focused on the hair care space. And they were doing product development because they had some of their own brands. Some of it was things like your, your, your daughter's um, hair products, you know, electric, electronics, you know, flattening and curling irons and hair guards and stuff like that. But also soft goods like, you know, shampoos and all that stuff and high-end brands. And... Um, so it was a confluence of things that I knew. I knew product, uh, consumer products. I knew e-commerce. I knew product development. And I knew beauty to a degree. And um, so it felt like a, a really good opportunity to leverage those things. And it was it was an amazing learning experience. And it was hard, uh, frankly. Um, here we were trying to, and, we, and we, we were doing pretty well early on. And then a couple of things um, came to bite us. One was that we weren't direct we didn't have direct relationship with a lot of those brands and those salon brands to this day have very restrictive uh, distribution agreements. Uh, they don't want to sell in anywhere, but salons basically. Um, and we were buying product from other places and selling it on the web. And they'd accepted that for a long time, but then I think salons and other people started to, um, to sort of bring attention to it. And so they started clamping down on that. And then you're also competing against Amazon in a business that, you know, and trying to, trying to rank high on search results and, and del deliver a competitive uh, fulfillment experience and delivery experience and all those components. And uh, between that and the economy, it just became really, really hard. Um, and I decided to, to leave the business and I came out West uh, with my, with my wife and kids. We, uh, we decided to do a, a big change of, of lifestyle and came out West, didn't have a job, didn't have a house, uh, but we're just, we were feeling the calling and, uh, and we embraced it. All right. So now I understand how you moved West and over that stretch, you worked at some great companies, eBay, Affirm, Vero, many others, but let's talk about what you're up to now. So, so what's the current company that, that you've been a co-founder of? Yeah. So about two years ago, uh, we started looking at the space of uh, the, the single family residential housing market um, and the, the, the industry. And 
realize that there's just it's it's a massive massive industry and it is it is full of opportunity especially when you look at it from some lenses that i i bring which is particularly from a product product management lens um you know there's 86 million homes in the united states single family homes um and they're old on average i think the median is 40 something years and california is higher than that and Pretty much, I think you'd be you'd be hard pressed to to um, to argue that they're particularly well built, and you certainly can't make the case that they're environmentally um, uh, beneficial. They're they're environmentally good. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I realized pretty on and all pretty early on in this research was that twenty three percent of global emissions come from single family homes. Which when that's I, not, I saw that's, that stat, like that was shocking to hear. Yeah, I was blown away. It's more than automobiles. Um, that and commercial, um, resident commercial buildings make up something like a third. So it, it's it's one of the single biggest components, and um, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, is sort of what the approach we took, and we spent a long time looking at and doing research on. Hey, we're not the only ones who thought about and people talk about, hey, single family housing and the housing industry being broken or they're not being enough homes, it's taking too long, they're not as well built as they could be, all those things. And um, we really, we really were looking at, well, why has nobody solved this? And if people have tried to solve it, why were they not successful? And some people have been very successful in building homes. There's several multi-billion dollar companies, Lennar, Pulte, KB Homes, Champion, Clayton, um, you know, um, Warren Buffett bought uh, one of those businesses decades ago, and it's been very, very successful for them. But in the single family homes and, and some of these other newer things, whether it's Katerra or um, Blue Homes, other people have tried and they've failed. And so we spent a lot of time talking to people in the industry. Um, and under, trying to understand, because the last thing we want to do is make the mistakes other people have already made. And so when you bring a product-focused approach to it, it starts with, hey, who's the customer? What do they want? How can we differentiate? How can we do a better job of meeting customer needs? And one of the things that, and again, maybe maybe we people won't care, but we think they will, and, and more and more um news and, and, and information is coming out that we should care around the environmental impact of homes. Um, and we don't, we, we don't think it's, it's that hard to make them environmentally friendly. So fundamentally that's, that's the business we're, we're building. It's, it's about changing how we think about single family homes are built. We own the process end to end. So we're buying end of life homes owning the land and the process and then redeveloping those lots with a new home and then selling it to a new, to a new buyer. And our homes are carbon negative. They generate more energy than they use. They're designed by a, by a world-class architect and are incredibly livable. Um, and we think we can get the process of building them from beginning to end down to several months versus a couple of years of what it takes today. Well, it just seems like it's, it, it reminds me of like, Owning an an EV electric vehicle like that wasn't like something that most people would pursue. Tesla made that cool, 
interesting, relevant, like it just define the category where now every car manufacturer is creating EVs and that's the movement towards that, you know, and it's, it's obviously better for the environment. So it reminded me of, of that movement where you've got this industry that's been around forever since, you know, people start building homes. It, it hasn't really evolved, but someone has to step in to lead the charge and make it, you know, that thing that people are aware that it has that impact on the environment and that it can be something that can be replicated and a business can be built around it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And one of the things that I think uh, anybody in sort of product development or, or, or marketing is aware of is that changing behavior is, is hard, right? Um, and that's one of the things we came and said, we don't, we don't want to change behavior. We don't want to um, change the buying experience for a home. And we don't want to change what it's like to operate or live in the home, except that we can make a better experience. And so that's one of the reasons our business model is what it is. We're not going out and asking people to build it, you know, have us build a home for them. We're selling fully built, completely, you know, just brand new homes for sale. And they operate essentially as a, as an end user, very similarly to any other home, but they have all electric systems. They have um, significant uh, solar on the roof. They have batteries, uh, plugged in with a span panel into the home so that the home is easily programmed to manage and have backup power. Um, they have high-end induction electric stoves, electric oven, a heat pump for HVAC, all these systems that are really in the guts of the home, but that create a better living experience in terms of the lighting, the HVAC, the temperature control, uh, power management, um, and they're green. So this was an idea from what I gather was incubated uh, from research at Innovation Endeavors, which is Eric Schmidt's fund or firm. So how did it even get started? Because this is a category that it's a big swing. If you are able to build a business just like Tesla has and be the market leader, you can build a, a, a massive world-class company, but it's very capital intensive and, you know, approaching it. And maybe that's why so many have failed. It's not an easy one to, to enter and, and scale and replicate. Yeah. So as, as you, as you mentioned, and I talked about earlier, we spent a lot of time doing research because we saw this opportunity and, and we didn't want to make the same mistakes other people had made. And one of the things we saw that some of the companies that had, had come before had, had tried to do was bring a lot of, for instance, automation to the, to, to the, to the problem. And that's something we, we looked at and said, wow, that, that isn't something we would want to do. And the main reason is we don't know what the right process to, to do to build the way we want to build is. And until we do, we wouldn't invest in automation. And so actually we took an approach that is very different than a lot of other people who've come before. And we said, Let, we're going to start with a very asset light approach. Um, so yes, we build as much of the home as we can offsite. That's a key differentiator for us because it allows us to do things in parallel, right? So we can we can design, permit and build the house before actually it's even um, uh, 
uh, we'll, we'll build the house before we own a lot because we're building essentially the same home in different places. And that allows us to build the home while the foundation is being done. So right there, we're just compressing time significantly. And because there's not a lot of automation, and if you think about it, there's no automation in the, uh, out on the site, what they call stick built on site. But we're doing it in a plant, in a facility with, you know, a level floor, ambient temperature, great light, safe um, equipment that can help people, much more efficient, all those things. And so we're doing it more safely, more efficiently, and at the same time. And once we have we have knowledge about, hey, we're doing this over and over again, we can find ways to bring in automation or other processes to add value, to increase quality, increase throughput. So this sort of asset light approach is a pretty big part of our, our of our model, if you will, our business model, and it allows us to put different plants in different places so that we can have different products and different models for different markets and geographies. And so we're not transporting homes, you know, hundreds of miles uh, the, or the components of the homes. Well, the other thing that was surprising to me was, um, and I guess, you know, it's, it's very obvious, but when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, like the, the level of waste and single family construction in that model is astronomical compared to what you're doing. Yeah, there's there's been studies done by the National Association of Home Builders, NEHB, that something like, and the EPA, something like 30 plus percent of a single family home, the materials that go in it are just wasted. And if you ever driven by a construction site on a street, those those dumpsters full of stuff. And that's because there's this uh, there's this phrase that, that I've heard several times in the industry that every home is a prototype. And coming from a product background, that just, you know, it's like blows my mind because it's like, why would you do that? Like, how different is a 2,800 square foot, two-story, four-bedroom, three-bath home with a great room? Um, you know, it doesn't have to be every time reinvented and start with a new set of plans. And that is also a key part of our business model that we're starting out with this notion that, hey, let's build an amazing design and spend a lot of time and effort building one design, just like you would any other product, whether it's a Tesla or an iPhone or a Dyson vacuum or name name it, right? Um, uh, and that that notion is allowing us to remove a lot of that waste that that's inherent in the process, where you you buy a piece of lumber that's you know two by four by 12 feet, but you only need seven feet. So you chop off the five feet and you may or may not use that in scrap or all the drywall or all the wiring. It just gets thrown in the dumpster. And, you know, the, the way the way the process works today, the, the, the incentives for the GC or the subs is such that they charge on time and material. So they're not, because everybody is disaggregated, it's not, it's not one team, if you will. They're not incented to drive efficiency, whether it's material or labor. And that's one of the other advantages we found of, again, of treating it like a product where you have one team building a product and we're all accountable to each other for the end result. And we all contribute to and, and share learning, um, which is, it, it's amazing already. We're just on our second home and the second home has just been built. And the difference, the, the amount of learning that we got from doing it the first time that the team has embraced and is bringing to bear in the second one, it's, it's, it's fascinating and it's, it's super uh, invigorating. Well, that's a perfect segue because I was going to ask like, like 
where, where you're at as far as the business, like funding raised, you just talked about how many homes and what's the, what's the future of the goals ahead? Yeah. So our, our big hairy goal is to get to about a thousand homes a year and that's six, seven, eight years away. And that'll include having multiple of those sort of low capital intensive plants that I mentioned. And, um, and that'll be a multi-billion dollar business. But a thousand homes a year, by the way, is is a drop in the bucket in terms of the housing needs of this country. Um, the 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 way we'll get there is starting to just by by proving out the process. And we've just put our first home on the market. Um, it's being shown literally this week. Uh, hopefully, it will sell quickly. Um, you know, ultimately, consumers in the market will decide if they if they like what we've what we've built and if they want to buy it. Um, so far, the the feedback from realtors and people who are visiting has been really really encouraging. So we're we're really excited to see where it lands. And we've already built our second home, uh, and the foundation for it is almost done. And so those things will converge next week. Uh, where we'll bring the the pieces of the home on site. We'll finish it in the next couple months. We'll sell it later this year. And so we're going to keep doing that. Um, get better and better and faster and faster and remove waste and inefficiency in the process to the point where we're doing, you know, a home, a, a home a month and then two homes a month and ultimately two homes a week out of this plant is where we think we can get to. And each one of those homes, is, as I mentioned, is actually generating more energy than it uses. It's carbon negative. The way we've built and the materials we've used to build the home is such that the embodied carbon, all the carbon that went into building the home, the materials, the supply chain, everything else is, is quite low to begin with, but we offset that. So the carbon footprint, if you will, of the home is basically zero. It gets to zero in about 16 years of operating. Because the home is generating more energy than it uses, that's why it's considered carbon negative. Um, and it actually offsets all the carbon that went into building it after 16 years, which is a level of environmental impact that's, you know, it's the, there's very, very few uh, homes, if any, that are being built like that in the United States today. And it, it sounds from what I, what I researched that you're also looking to almost, almost like open source it, like you're, you, what you're learning in terms of the process to share this with other builders so that other builders can hopefully, you know, do a better job for our environment. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's something that we look at and say, hey, what will success look like down the road? Um, and yes, becoming a, a, a going concern and, and having, you know, growing the business and being successful and paying paying back our, our investors and having all of our shareholders and, and employees who are all shareholders do well is important. And at a thousand homes a year, as I mentioned, we're dropping the bucket. So if we can prove that this can be done and it can be done better for the environment, more efficiently, less wasteful and financially successful, then we're hopeful that actually we can, and, and it sounds a little um, altruistic or braggadocious to say it, but if, if we can influence other people's or parts of the industry, to sort of take some risks and, 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 and learn or try things that we were doing and then start to share ideas and share success, that would be an amazing outcome for, we, we, all, we all feel that way. And so we are more than willing to share what we're doing, what we're learning. We may not share exactly what we're gonna do next, 
because uh, you know um, it's <laughs> got to have a competitive like advantage somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we we want to we want to keep a little bit of a competitive competitive advantage once we get going, but we absolutely want to to share best practice and learn from other people who are trying similar things because ultimately the everybody wins if we do. Well, I'm obviously preaching to the choir to you and your employees and the investors that you know the timing in the market. You know, there's such a, a movement of consumers becoming more aware of what's happening. And if you look at, you know, Apple just announced their latest iPhone and a big piece of that presentation was the Mother Nature video talking about how they're becoming a net zero carbon footprint company by 2030. So if Apple is producing a high end video talking about that, it's, you know, this is mainstream. Yeah, I, I, think, I think, you know, it, like any adoption curves, they take time and there's early adopters and and then the mass adoption and then the late adopters and we're we're still obviously in the early 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 adopter curves on some of this stuff um but the fact yeah the fact that heat pumps in in the us are still there's less than half of the new homes are built with heat pumps and they're they're just way more efficient um and there's lots of other benefits too it's like less expensive one thing that i didn't mention is the homes that we build there's no utility bill right? That's a good point. Yeah. There's no utility bill. And because there's no gas, it's all electric, right? You're basically have no utility bill. And if you're paying 600 bucks a month on gas and electric or whatever, yes, you still have water and sewer and the rest of it. Actually, the home is, is pre-plumbed for what's called gray water reclamation. The stuff that goes down the drains, not the black water, but the stuff that goes down the drains can actually be easily treated in the home and used for things like irrigation, laundry, doing dishes, that kind of stuff. Um, so you can even save on the water. But the home that the home that we're the home that we're selling right now, and the homes that we will sell in the future, they have a zero electric bill over over the course of a year. Obviously, depending on usage, but that's how it's model for average usage, you can even sell some electricity back to the grid and make a little money. All right. So you've been involved in multiple consumer products here. So I want to get your advice. Like what, like what advice would you have for building a great consumer product? You've been associated with so many of these great products that we've talked about. So what, what advice would you have there? Boy, and uh, I have been super fortunate to work, work at the companies and on the products that I have. And I think the, the some of the common themes that I would encourage anybody that and that I try to remind myself of are, are that ultimately you need to solve a real need. Um, and that sounds obvious. And it's easy, particularly for product people, to get enamored with what their their product and their perspective. And ultimately that doesn't matter. You need to be thinking about, and you need to put yourself in the in the shoes of your consumer, of your buyer, of the market you're going after. And insights, right? The what I'll call a definition of an insight for me is a surprising truth. Something that when you look at it, you're used to looking at it a certain way, and then all of a sudden you you look at it different way. You're like, oh my gosh, right? And I think the iPhone is a great example of, of that, where it's like that's not how you would do it. So we'll go, okay, well, maybe there's a different or better way. Um, lots of successful companies, Dyson, name, name your brands and your products. That's something that they genuine, generally and, and I think pretty consistently tap into as an insight uh, to engage people and to find a way in, right? And to, and to create innovation. 
And so that notion of looking for insights um, and, and being really clear and honest about who your customer is and what you're solving for. And again, they, they may sound obvious and, and they kind of are. I was actually just reading a, a book uh, where the, one of the themes of the book was this idea that it was actually about leadership, but talks about, look, it, it's not complicated. It's quite simple. And it's very difficult to do well. Mm. And those, that, those things are both can be very true. Um, and it's the, it's the doing it well that is fundamental, I think, to any great product and lasting product. And you've been an advisor to lots of startups too. So through your travels, you've, you've seen different challenges that entrepreneurs are typically struggling with. So, so what are some common pitfalls that you've seen out there and ways to avoid them? Yeah, there's there's a few. I mean, I've been, again, fortunate to work with some really successful entrepreneurs and businesses. Some of the companies I've been advising recently and and have been involved in have, have been just, you know, extraordinary um, founders and, and product people. Um, and in part because, and I've learned from them that they're that they're following some of those those tenets that we just talked about, about, hey, really trying to solve a real problem or coming at a problem differently, um, differentiating themselves because they can talk about it in a way that gets people to, wow, that sounds better, that sounds different, that feels different. Um, one of the things that I, I think is, is important and that I try to encourage uh, younger or earlier stage companies to do is to be willing to take some risks and to um, have conviction, have a point of view. One of the things that I think I've seen a lot of times is, is this notion of, hey, we want to try to appeal to as broad a segment as possible. And that is a lot of times um, uh, an ineffective strategy because you end up not really standing for anything. Right, it sort of ended up being milk toast. And I actually use the example of 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 Apple, which people don't remember that well. I'm sure some people do. I do. That it started out as a as a very niche brand for a long time. It was a very niche brand. Mm -hmm. um, it was for acad academics and uh, designers for for the first couple of decades of its existence. And it was that consistent. Jim Collins talks about consistency of effort in an intelligent direction. And I love that quote because it's the key to success in a lot of ways, right? In a lot of, in a lot of different applications. And by standing for something and not diluting that identity, that product philosophy, that commitment, over time, you have a very small target segment, but then over time, the concentric circles that glom onto that and that, that appeals to become massive. And, and so look now today, Apple is not an anti-establishment company, which it's famous 1984 ad, you know, they aired it once and we still talk about it. And it was, it was the definition of anti-establishment. It's now the most establishment company in the world. And it hasn't lost its identity. And I think there's just a huge lesson from a brand product perspective there that it started with having a strong point of view and solving a problem for a very discreet and not massive target audience. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. All right. Top three apps you can't live without. Top three apps. Well, I'm not going to count like the Kindle as an app because it's hardware and an app. 
Right. But uh, for me, I'd have to say, and I've recently deleted most of my social apps off my phone because of some flow training we did as a team. And it's, social apps definitely don't help your flow. So um, number one would be actually Google Maps, high utilitarian value. I use Evernote a lot, uh, productivity and, um, and Teams, uh, which we use as our internal sort of communications function, Microsoft Teams. And, um, and then uh, I'd have to say uh, the New York Times app. Pretty boring. <laughs> uh, actually, it's actually more exciting than many other entrepreneurs. It's usually Gmail, Slack, and then <laughs> something you know, just like you know, their calendar, or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, all right. So you just mentioned a book you were reading, Jim Collins, or like so, so a podcast or a book recommendation. Uh, so a book recommendation that uh, I got from reading. Uh, I think it was the CEO of Accenture, so I'm stealing her book recommendation, but it's uh, The Wisdom of the Bullfrog. Um, William McRaven, who was the head of the Special Ops Command and the longest serving SEAL, that's the term bullfrog, where that's where that comes from. They're, they're named the, the bullfrog if they are the active, most senior active SEAL. And it's just, a, it's a short read, short audible book, if you that's your, that's your format of choice, but some great um, just great reminders, great lessons, super inspiring. So that's one. The other one I give you on the nonfiction side, which I also just about to finish, uh, an author that I really like, Abraham Verghese, uh, The Covenant of Water. Really cool book. Just some, again, some great life lessons. And, and it is fiction. If I said nonfiction, I meant fiction. Um, Wizard of the Bullfrog is not. Um, and yeah, I'll go with those. Yeah, and by the way, a plug, last plug, if you haven't read it, Jim Collins, Good to Great, is a that's perennial. Like a stand, yeah, that's one of the Yeah, we're short actually going to probably read it. Books. Yeah, we're gonna probably going to use it for, we do an offsite every three or four months. And uh, one of the things we do is we read a book before and discuss it over uh, whatever, libations in the evening, one evening. And so uh, we're probably going to pick that one this, this time. All right, so what else do you like to do uh, for fun outside of work? Well, one of the reasons I moved to California 12 years ago was to be in the outdoors. So uh, jack of all trade, master of none, uh, like to sail, love to ski, um, hiking, biking, uh, all those kinds of outdoor things. Uh, those are, those are, those, that's sort of, where I get my, um, I recharge my batteries that way. Perfect. Well, Carl, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the great stories that you shared of building great products and companies along the way. And of course, what you're up to now with Arrow Homes and all the great advice. Thank you, Keith. Great to, great to be with you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.